0: Um, What is RUF? Well, there's lots of ways to say it, but one of the things we often say is that you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And at the very same time, you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach uh, of God's grace. And so wherever you are, wherever you find yourself tonight, uh, we hope that you find RUF to be a safe place for you to explore the truth claims of Christianity and figure out what you believe about Jesus Uh, in the Bible. and So really glad you're here. We are studying the Ten Commandments this semester. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, no sweat. You can look on with a friend, perhaps, or even look on the announcement sheet. I have the text printed for you uh, on the announcement sheet as well. And tonight, before... uh, uh, Well, tonight... Instead of, we've kind of been doing, kind of laying the groundwork for our study, and tonight we actually jump in to the commandments themselves. And so we start, obviously, with commandment number one. And from the get-go, and I know this might sound obvious, but it needs to be said that these aren't randomly placed by God, these commandments. Uh, They are in a particular order. And so number one, uh, the first commandment is very, very important. Uh, and it is placed because it is critical really to understanding uh, the rest of the commandments that we 're going to study uh, this semester because it lays the foundation for the other nine and so with that in mind, let me read uh, these short passages that are on your handout again, a lot of times on Wednesday nights, I might we 're going to look at maybe something in the New Testament, and if so i 'll try to have that printed for you. Uh, as well. So that's the Romans passage there that I uh, have listed. So let me read. This is God's word. Exodus twenty verse three you shall have no other gods before me. Romans chapter one verse twenty five. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised Amen. Let me pray and ask God to come and help us tonight. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that you would stir us up uh, in a very good way through this commandment. Uh, Show us very clearly the other gods um, the idols in our hearts that we are bowing down to and adoring. Um, Show us clearly those things, that they will never give us life. Show us the delusional nature of our idolatry. And at the very same time, show us the goodness of Jesus, uh, that uh, Jesus is a good master who does not grind us into the ground uh, like all the other gods that we uh, tend to serve. Uh, Show us that goodness tonight uh, that we find in the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Like many of you, uh, I wear contact lenses. I've worn them for a long, long time. And if you wear contact lenses, you know that you eventually get to a point uh, when you run out of your year supply or whatever, and and in order to get another prescription... You got to go back to the eye doctor. They got to look at your eyes to see if your prescriptions change, and then you get another year supply. And if you're like me, you wear them super long and can get maybe two years. Don't tell anybody. Um, and so, but recently I went to the eye doctor, and you know they did the full workup, the glaucoma test, and shine the bright lights and look deep into your eyes and all these sorts of things. And then they, of course, put the charts. Uh, on the wall and give you an eye test to see if your prescriptions changed. And the doctor comes back and says that basically my uh, right eye had changed just slightly and that my left eye was working harder and that if I didn't kind of make that small adjustment in my prescription that it would eventually, you know, my left eye would start getting worse because it was overcompensating. Uh, and, And she basically says it's a minimal change you probably won't be able to notice that much of a difference, but she said you, everything will be just a little sharper and will come into greater focus for you. And I was doubting that, thinking surely it's not that big a deal and uh, just that slight change in my prescription. But she put the lenses on and she said, see if you can tell the difference. And I could. Uh, Things were just a little bit clearer and had a little bit more clarity and greater focus. I tell you that story because that's exactly what this first commandment on idolatry, uh, that's how it's intended to function in our life. It's meant to show us and give us greater focus and greater clarity on, number one, who God is and what he's like. But also it's meant to give us a little greater focus. This it's first commandment's like a lens, so to speak, that we look into and we see ourselves more clearly as well. If you remember last week, C.S. Lewis, as he describes the commandments and their purpose, he says that the moral law, which we learned last week, the moral law is the same thing as the Ten Commandments, is given to us for the proper working of the human machine. Isn't that amazing? I love that quote. Basically, Lewis is saying, uh, and we see all throughout the Bible, that the Ten Commandments, God gives them to us as a gift because they show us how life works best. They show us how we were designed to live. They show us what it means to be fully human. Tonight, as we look at this First Commandment, we're going to see three things. It's going to show us the foundation of idolatry, Secondly, we're going to see the dynamics of idolatry. And then thirdly, we'll see the solution. Or what does it look like to begin to dismantle the idols in our hearts? And so let's look at number one, the foundation of idolatry. I wish I would have printed this for you, but I didn't. But if you remember last week, we spent a whole week on the prologue. And the prologue is huge for understanding the Ten Commandments and making sense of them. If you remember the prologue, and if you have your Bible, look at verses 1 and 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land or out of the house of slavery. And in those verses we see God says, I am the Lord your God. And listen, and when I do this, I'm not trying to be fancy. I actually think it actually helps us understand and bring to life this passage what i mean by that this idea when he uses the word god in those verses in the hebrew that word is elohim and that means mighty one and so when god is using elohim here what is he reminding us of well very clearly he's saying i am the mighty one i am your creator and as your creator, I own you. I own you and I have the right to do with you whatever I please. And some of you are like, whoa, that's very strong and sounds oppressive. Hold the phone, okay? Before you go there, and I know it's hard to swallow, that, that's the way that sounds. But listen, Christianity, and this is why, one of the reasons why Christianity is so beautiful. It is different in terms of how it talks about sovereignty, God's sovereignty. In other words, in God's sovereignty, we are treated as subjects, not as objects. And the difference is everything, okay? Think about it. What is an object? Something to be used. An object is something that is to be manipulated or acted upon. But a subject is what? Something that is to be appreciated or valued or studied or loved and deeply known. In essence, what God is saying here, right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, is that yes, I am Elohim. I am your Creator, and you are my creation. And I do have the right to ask of you, and to do anything with you that I please. But, look back at the verses... Anytime you see in your Bible, LORD, all caps, that means Yahweh. I'll work out that in just a second. But but God says, I have the right to do with you as I please. Yes, I'm Elohim, but I am Yahweh Elohim. I am the Lord, your God. Insert everything that we talked about last week in terms of the commandments are flowing out of a relationship with God. They don't form the relationship. They flow out of relationship. God has entered into a personal relationship with you and wants to relate to you as a person, not as a robot. That is huge when you think about christianity in the bible and the bible's word for this kind of relationship is the word covenant and a covenant simply means a bond or a connection or trust with someone we if you when you become a christian you are in covenant with god himself now why in the world do i spend four or five minutes going into all that Well, very simply put, as someone who is an image bearer of God and all human beings are created in God's image, and God being our creator and we being his creation, it tells us something about us. And that is, you and I were built covenantally as a human being. You were built to be dependent upon something. Translation, You were built to worship. From the moment you were born, every single one of us have been looking for something that we can plug ourselves into to make ourselves feel alive, to give us meaning, to give us hope, to give us significance, to give us truth, acceptance, and love. Everyone in this place tonight and on this campus and every person that you will ever make eye contact with is a worshiper. It's never a matter of whether someone, one person worships and another person doesn't. No, everyone is a worshiper. And if God isn't ruling and reigning in your heart, something else or someone else will be. It's just a fact of your humanity. It is how you were made. Application. Think about that. And then think about your own heart and, and, and your own struggles that you deal with. If you don't frame this first commandment in those terms of everything we just talked about on how you were made to plug into something and to worship something, then what ends up happening is you end up treating your sin very superficially, surface, surface level. Tim Keller is famous for saying, The root of every sin is idolatry. What does he mean by that? Well, there's something deeper going on in the midst of your sin, whatever it is that you struggle with, than simply breaking the rules. There's something always deeper than, oh, I lied, oh, I lusted, oh, I gossiped. Think about it this way. You never simply just tell a lie. The lie... That you are telling the reason why you lied, is it's not just simply telling a lie, you lie because you want to save face. Or you lie to get someone's approval, or you lie to get in with a certain group. You never simply just cheat. Why do you cheat? Well, it's deeper than that. You cheat because you're afraid to fail. Because if you don't get the right grade in that class, then you don't get into the school that you need to get into in order for you to be successful. You see where I'm going? You never simply just gossip. Why do we talk negatively about someone else? Well, because we're insecure. And we need to put someone else down so that we can make ourselves feel better at someone else's expense. There's always something deeper going on. And this first commandment says that more deeply than anything else, every person in this room is living for something and you are covenantally binding yourself to someone or to something else. And we are built in such a way that in order, the Bible says, for our life to work properly, God has to be the center of our life. Because that's how life works best. And we're going to work this out. But here's a question. Is God the center of your life? Is God on the throne in your life or is it someone or something else? Second, the dynamics of idolatry. And the second thing here is we want to get at Uh, how our idols work. How does idolatry work? And what are some blind spots that maybe we have that keep us from seeing our own idols in our hearts? Okay? Uh, And and the first thing, and if you're a note-taker, there's two sub-points, and the first one is this. First, our idols deceive us. And that's the Romans 1 passage. Verse 25, We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We actually believe the lies of the idols. And everything, uh, all idolatry, flows out of a common lie. What is that common lie? God doesn't love me, God doesn't care about me. God is not going to provide for me. God is not going to protect me. But this idol, whatever it is that you're serving, that will protect me. And here's the dangerous and scary thing about idolatry. It is such a good lie that it is almost true. Almost true. And let's be honest, okay? Idols, at times, particularly at the beginning... They make you feel good. Uh, They're exciting. They make you feel happy. For example, if you have an idol of relationships where all you want to do is date someone and be in that relationship of your dreams, that relationship will make you feel significant for a time. Or if you, more than anything else, want to do whatever it is that you want to do, then you'll probably feel free for a little bit. Or if you make good grades and you work hard and you're successful and you get into whatever school you want to get into and get whatever job you want to get into, you'll feel successful and smart. If you're in with the right group, you'll feel powerful and you will feel important. All those things are good. And and most idols, when we think about it, think about it this way. Work, alcohol. Sex, money, in and of themselves, in the right context, those are gifts, good gifts from God that he has given us. But they make horrible gods, don't they? Because if we make those things and use them the way God did not intend for them to be used, in other words, we make idols of them, and some of you know what this is like You'll, it'll never, never be enough. You'll, you'll get there and you'll think, I just need more, or it's not enough. It will never completely satisfy you. And in the end, it will never deliver and will leave you lonely and will eventually enslave you and crush you. Some of you have experienced that. Because it's a lie. It, it's never going to do what it says it's going to do. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Pleasure money and power and safety are all, as far as they go, good things. The badness consists of pursuing them in the wrong way, or by the wrong method, or too much. Wickedness, when you examine, turns out to be the pursuit of some good of some good in the wrong way. What is Lewis saying? Idols are not the problem. The problem is that you and I try to pursue them apart from God. We pursue them and we believe the lie that the idol will love us better than God will. And it's a lie. And we're deceived. Do you know you're deceived? If you're pursuing and trying to find life in your idol. Secondly, second sub-point, there's always a slavery, enslaving aspect to our idolatry. If you enter into idolatry, again, you always do so covenantally. It's profound and it's subtle and it's often hidden and we don't see it. But the Bible says that we make idols, we make covenants with our idols. You see what that's meaning? It means that eventually those idols have some power over you and begin to enslave you. And in Romans 1, I didn't list it, but it says, God gave them over to their desires. What does that mean? Well, it means that a normal good desire eventually overtakes you and becomes like cocaine and heroin to you something that you cannot live without. Let's use an example. Here's an illustration. Think about work. And I use something because, like, normally we think of the real nasty, uh, awful things. No, no, let's think of something good like something like work. Did, which, which we would say is a good gift from God. Work is good. And here's what I want you to think about. Did the workaholic dad, did he start out his working career by saying, I'm going to be a workaholic and I'm going to run my family into the ground, I'm going to run my wife into the ground and my children, I'm going to ruin my health. No. It started out as a very good thing, right? Because he says, I want to work money. I want to, be, I want to, work to earn money for my family to provide. Uh, I want to uh, have, be successful in my career. I want to be a good employee uh, for the company that I work for. I want to have retirement. I want to pay for my kids' college. All good things, but over time, what happens? Well, over time, he starts to look for that, to that work to give him meaning, to give him life, to give him importance and power. And before long, here's what ends up happening. The company can't survive without me. I've got to be at the office. And some of you have experienced this. And then all of a sudden, he starts missing the soccer games. All of a sudden, he can't show up at the ballet recital. And all of a sudden, he's never at dinner when you're having dinner with your family. And he ends up sacrificing his family on the altar of his idol. See how it works? Very subtle. Very hidden. But the idol ends up enslaving him and running him into the ground. And I want you to be honest. Could this finally be the explanation for your time at Ole Miss if you're a returning student? Or could it finally be the explanation if you're a freshman of your first few weeks at college? Friends, there is something much bigger at work in you. There is an idol that this campus is bowing down to and adoring and serving, and it is the God of being in. Many of you go to bed at night and you're filled with anxiety and fear because you think what I need in order to feel good about myself is to be accepted in order to finally be happy and find meaning at my time at Ole Miss is to be accepted and approved of a certain group of people. Maybe it's a sorority, maybe it's a fraternity or some group of people or, uh, or an organization. And on the outside, because we got this down at Ole Miss, there's this cool aloofness like, I got this, I'm good, no, nothing's going to bother me. But on the inside, you actually lay awake at night and your thought is, if I don't listen to the right obscure bands, if I don't dress the right way, if I don't get into the right sorority in a few weeks or the right fraternity, I am done at this place. I will be forgotten. I will be a nobody. I will be left out. And here's the kicker, and this is what you've got to see. This is what you've got to see when it relates to idolatry. Is we think, remember, they deceive us. We think, once I get in, if I can just get into that certain group... And uh, all will be right with me, and I will not feel this way anymore. I will be good. (coughs) Not true. Why is that not true? Well, because in a few weeks, trust me, you will wake up, and that master will call for service again. And you know what will go through your head? I'm in now. But now, within the group, there's another group that I need to get into. And you see, that is a never-ending struggle. Friends, that's not freedom. That's slavery. You are enslaved to other people's acceptance and approval and opinions of you. That is what's controlling you more than anything else. Here's the principle. The second point. When you worship anything that is not God, so if God's not the center of your life, and something else is, it will lead you to slavery, and it will eventually crush you. Number three, the solution. So what do we do? How do we, uh, how, how do we move forward and begin to dismantle the idols in our hearts? And this will be a little bit of a summary, too, to kind of bring this all together. This is another couple sub-points. We've got to deal with the sin beneath the sin. Okay? You've got to see and go deeper and stop treating your sin and your idol superficially. Most of us wonder why we struggle and we fail to change and grow as a Christian. And we explain it away, but it is because most of the time we are treating our sin very superficially. Let me uh, explain it with this quick example. For example, you might say that you have an idol of money or materialism. But could it be that the truth is having lots of money actually feeds something more fundamental in you? Maybe it's an idol of comfort or an idol of power. And I say, this is huge in framing the discussion on how you change and transform as a person. We spend lots of our times, and maybe you are here right now, God, take away the sin, take away the temptation, the greed, the lust, the worry, whatever it might be. God, please take it away from me. I don't want it. And then it seems like Crickets. You get nothing, you don't change, and you wonder what is going on. Could it be that the reason why you're not changing is because you're not going deep enough? Because you're still dealing with the surface instead of getting to the sin beneath the sin, the real thing that you're after in your life. That's what you got to get to. If you're in a seat, you should have gotten a handout that gives you questions for actually applying this. How do you figure out your heart idols? Look at those questions. And if you didn't get a copy, we came up short on some copies, I can get you a copy of that. My number's on the sheet. Text me, I can get it to you. Those questions will help you figure out your idols. They're searching questions. But it will help you get to the root. Secondly... We've got to see the delusional nature of our idols. In other words, we've got to see that they're a lie. Naturally, you and I, we shrink back from things that are going to hurt us. If we touch a stove, we pull our hand back. If we see a busy street, we're not going to cross it and just run out there because it's dangerous. The thing that makes idolatry so scary is it masks the danger. It creates this delusional field that, thinks, uh, that, that makes us think that we're getting blessed. And so you've got to reject our idols. In order to do that, we've got to see that they're actually cursing us. For example, you've got to own the fact that you caused the breakup in the relationship. Why? Because you were so insecure that you actually smothered and completely suffocated the other person in the relationship and caused it to end. You've got to see that. Or maybe you've got to see that your pride and your cool aloofness is actually the very thing that's alienating you from having deep and personal uh, and long-lasting friendships on this campus. You see, your idol will destroy what you are initially after as you are seeking them, and they will always demand a sacrifice. And then lastly... You've got to replace the idol with a new affection. You can't just root it out. You've got to replace it with something better. And we believe that something better is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christianity says that God doesn't demand your life in order to be loved and to be significant. That Jesus actually offers himself for you because he loves you. That's how Christianity is different than idolatry and the idols that you and I often serve. There's a great story. There was a pastor 150 years ago by the name of Dr. Hogue. And he was a church planter. He planted two churches in Richmond, Virginia that are actually still there to this day. And he hated slavery. He's in the South 150 years ago. He was preaching against, fighting against slavery. Uh, He absolutely hated it. And he actually married a woman who had a dowry that included seven slaves. And he, of course, immediately released those seven slaves and says, You're free to go. You're no longer a slave. And what was interesting and what blew his mind is that one of the slaves left and the other six slaves stayed on his property and refused to leave. He didn't know what was happening. He Finally, he was frustrated and says, what are you doing? Don't you know that you're free? You can go anywhere you want. You can do anything you want and no one will stop you. You're free. And one of the former slaves looked at him and says, if we can go anywhere we want and do anything we want, then we want to stay with you. And at first you might think, That's crazy. But I want you to think about something. These men were in the horrific institution of slavery. They were treated poorly. They were treated as property. They were abused and used and traded. And for the first time in their life, they met a man who didn't use them, but who actually honored them and respected them and treated them with love and dignity and respect. And so when they found their new freedom, all they wanted to do was be near to this man. And I tell you that story because that's what the Ten Commandments, in this first commandment particularly, is holding out for us tonight. It's holding out for us. True freedom. It's holding out for us a God, a Master who is so good and so loving and so gentle that in your freedom all you want to do is be near to Him because there's no other Master that treats you like that. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was treated like a slave? Ever think about that when you read the Gospels? He was beaten He was crucified outside the city and uh, basically experienced a death reserved for the most hardened, the worst of criminals. Why? Friends, Jesus Christ became a slave so that you and I could be free. If tonight you give your life to Jesus... He will not use you. He will not grind you into the ground like all of our idols. But instead, he will give you the life that you're actually looking for. And if you fail him, he will not treat you shrewdly. He will not say, get better. And until you get better, then I will not love you. No, you know what Jesus does? He takes the penalty for our sin. He takes our guilt and shame and He overwhelms us with His love. And to the degree that we get that, to the degree that that actually makes its way down into your soul and starts to melt your heart, is to the degree that you will actually start releasing your idols and experiencing the freedom... That you were meant to experience. Experience. And experience all that God has created you to be. As a human being. You think about that. Let's pray.